Happy Hump Day, Bingers. As always, I want to thank you for listening and also thank you for rating, reviewing, and sharing the show with your friends. My guests today have made it their mission to shine a light on lesser-known cases, specifically involving victims in marginalized communities. They host the Fall Line Podcast. Please welcome Laura Norton and Brooke Hargrove. The Internet's full of true crime podcasts. More and more are added to the list every day. Figuring out where to start or where to go next can be overwhelming. But have no fear, I'm here to help. I'm Bob Ruff, and this is the place to find your next true crime binge. Right, so um, I, I should point out to listeners, this is first Erica, our production manager, you guys have heard me talking about, happens to be in Michigan this week, not Texas, uh, but we're <laughs> in Michigan, and uh, she stopped by the studio, so she is, she's actually, I, I made her sit in the studio on a microphone for the first time, so you can actually say hi and they can hear you, Erica. Hi, guys. Finally can say hi. <laughs> he gave me five-minute warning that I'd be on audio, so forgive me. As we were walking through, I'm like, you want me to turn the mic on for you, too? Um, so, uh, tell me about yourself. So, so we have Laura and Brooke. First of all, who's who? So, you're, I know your audience can see this. Um, I'm Laura. I'm Brooke. Okay. <laughs> so, the one who raised her hand first—that's Laura. Uh, <laughs> uh, Laura. Laura appears to be the taller of the two. Yeah, I'm the I'm the tall one that wears black. I'm the host, um, and <laughs> I do the writing and research for the show. Okay, and then and then how about you, Brooke? What is your role? Um, I do the family interviews. Oh, nice. And so, that, you know, it's, it's interesting. We just, as I was looking to hook up with you guys, we just did an ad for your show on, on mm-hmm. Truth and Justice this week. And I was, I was, I was talking to Maggie and, and I saw that she was just on with you guys. I thought, I just, I just, I think I just did an, av- an advertisement for them. Yeah, it really synced up. Yeah, it's perfect. Okay, so uh, let's start. So, Laura, I see that that um, you do the writing, the research. You're you're a writer by trade. What do you do? What did you do before you became a podcaster? So, my area of specialization is creative nonfiction. Um, and like most writers, I have a second job. So, uh-huh. I teach. Um, I'm a professor, and I teach narrative, creative writing, um, and podcasting. Actually, and that's sort of how I fell into all of this. And I've been friends with Brooke since college. And when I started my own podcast, um, I knew we were going to be working with families um, and working pretty intensely with families. One skill I don't have is talking to people about traumatic incidents. I would say that I have the opposite of that skill. (laughs) (laughs) So it's, you know, because I have a research brain. Um, Right. So, and I reached out to Brooke. She's a licensed professional counselor. Um, and we happen okay. to both be back in Atlanta, where we're from, and we both have kids about the same age. We're spending lots of time together. Um, and I asked her if she would be interested in doing that part. And she was, thank goodness. And so we started, started doing the work together that way. And it ended up just being really organically, you know, just worked really well for her to work with the families and for me to work with experts and on the research. I do a lot of archival research because we mm-hmm. do cases that don't get much coverage. So oftentimes when we're doing um, coverage for a case, there might be one or two news articles or maybe a Charlie Project, Charlie Project. Mm -mm. That's (laughs) don't tell Megan I said that, please. (laughs) 
<laughs> um, a Charlie Project entry. Um, so we have to dig pretty deep. Um, a lot of our research is primary, meaning that I produce it myself with the help mm-hmm. of our research assistants. Um, I know you do a lot of that too, so you understand what I mean. And mm-hmm. um, so we're kind of going out there and doing it. And a lot of that is going to be actually finding folks, interviewing them, talking to them, experts, law enforcement, family. And it really takes both of us to kind of make that happen, to get all the people together and produce a narrative about a story. Yeah, I was just listening to some of your episodes and you guys have a nice fit. I guess I didn't quite catch from listening that there was a distinction between who did each role, but it's a good, bl- but, but you, you could tell the blend of how, how you guys put it together is a, is a great balance. And I'm sorry, did you say you teach podcasting? Yeah. Um, at a college? Yeah, I kind of sneakily invented it, my own courses that I <laughs> I wanted to I wanted to teach it. Um so if you uh, propose a class, if you propose it, you may teach it. So, okay. you know, I was interested in teaching new kinds of creative nonfiction. And you know, schools are very interested in digital work. And so you mm-hmm. kind of combine those together. I proposed a class, it was very popular. Um and so I'm still teaching it. I'm on I'm on sabbatical this year because I'm writing a book, um, but mm-hmm. generally I teach that class and it's quite popular. Have you had any of your students like go on to make popular podcasts? Not yet, um, but a lot of them do make podcasts um, and have made some cool indie stuff. They're a little shy about putting it out there in the world. Um, uh-huh. You know, people can be scary <laughs> on right. Apple Podcasts, getting reviews, um, but they've made some really beautiful work. and. A few of them have gotten some work working at local radio stations. Um, a few of them have sought out internships. So I'm really hoping that they'll kind of take the extra step and launch their stuff because so much of it is so great. Right. Yeah. You just have to, to tell them right up front not to read the reviews ever. None of them. It'll keep their sanity. We, you tell people that, but they read the reviews. <laughs> right. Of course they do. And so, Brooke, you are you're a licensed professional therapist? Yeah, I am. Um, I'm at home with my kids right now, so I'm not uh-huh. practicing. Um, but before I had kids, um, I just worked in the field working with individuals and couple family. So what was the conversation like when you guys decided to, cause, cause the podcast has been going since what, uh, June of 2017. Mm-hmm. So you're, you're over four years in now. Yeah. I thought she was crazy. <laughs> um, because. You know, we used to hang out and I used to like watch true crime shows, but I was not a podcast listener and she listened to a hundred thousand. I didn't even really know. (laughs) I was really late to every game, the cell phone game, the social media. I was like, what is this? Um, And then she said, you know, I'm really interested in this case. It's so old. And I thought, what the hell is there to do? to do about a case that old, um, 1990, like, what do you do? But once I saw Laura start her research, and once I started speaking with the family, I was like, oh, this is, um, this is great. Maybe something can happen here. So. And so that was your, your first season was on the Millbrook twins, the disappearance. Mm-hmm. So was that was that case the kind of the catalyst for starting the podcast, or did you decide to start it and then started looking for a case? That was the catalyst. Um, we didn't necessarily know we were going to continue. 
It was mm-hmm. just the sort of I'm once again, I think you and a lot of other podcasters will relate to this. The sort of stark injustice of that case was just so maddening that when I approached it, it was at this kind of point where I was making a podcast project to teach myself the ropes. Mm-hmm. And I had encountered this case that was so maddening and upsetting. Tell them how you found it Oh, in your class. Yeah, I was. I had listened to, I think it was The Trail Run Cold, was it not? I think it was Robin. Yeah. I think I had heard it mentioned on Robin's podcast. He's a friend of ours from The Trail Run Cold. Mm-hmm. He's a wonderful person. If you haven't had him on, you should. He is delightfully Canadian and just a really cool Erica, guy. write that down. Taking notes. Yes. <laughs> he is wonderful. One of the nicest people in podcasting. Um, just a great guy. But their case had just gotten no coverage. And I was teaching my class about doing research. And I was teaching them how kind of teaching them some stuff about um, ethics and teaching them about argumentation and about how some cases get more coverage than others. So I was basically teaching them boring stuff by showing them stuff I'm interested in. It's an old teacher trick. (laughs) (laughs) And I had them pull up. Did you you write the textbook for your class? We had no textbook. Uh, Even better. (laughs) So lots of just pulling up things I was interested in. This is is the trick, right? Very free. So they like that. This was a, you know, it's an English composition too. You got to do what you got to do. And I pulled up the Springfield Three, a very important case um, of three people going missing at the same time. And I showed them all of the Google hits that were there. And, you know, there's hundreds of thousands, as there should be. It's an important case of three people going missing together. Then I pulled up the Milbrook twins in Augusta, Georgia. I had just heard of them. Um, and there were three hits. And, and they were all from 2013. And this is like, you know, besides web sleuths and stuff. These were actual articles. And they had gone right. missing in 1990. And I was like, what do you guys think about this? And they had some interesting things to say. But then I was like, this can't be right. So I have access to a lot of archives. I went in, I looked, we even went down to Augusta and I went to their actual archives, like the rare letters section. There's nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's when I realized after looking into those 2013 articles, their family had been trying to get coverage all this time, but the case had been improperly closed for all that time. Okay. So there's all this time where the girls hadn't been compared against missing people, um, unidentified persons all this time and when they went missing originally there was not a single article in the newspaper about twins going missing which is incredibly unusual in the united states for twins children non-familial abduction right that's kind of and what it honestly just pissed me off sure and so when i get pissed off um i'm a nerd you make a podcast I start researching. <laughs> Eventually, I start doing research. Um, and so it all just kind of came together, you know, like after we talked to the family and they were all for it. Because it's important for us, we work with families, you know, it's a community mm-hmm. project. We said, okay, we can get this information together. Here's all the stuff we found. Here are these interviews. Let's make this project to make the case well known. And that was kind of the goal. And it just sort of moved on from there. And we kept doing more and more. And our goal is just to find cases where there's little to no coverage. Like, that's our first priority. Little to no coverage, maybe little to no investigation. Sometimes there has been good investigation. Sometimes there hasn't. It just depends. We're always keeping an eye out for cases where people have been marginalized in some way, because that really Mm -hmm. ties into that little to no media, right? 
So maybe it has to do with, you know, race. Maybe it has to do with sexuality. Maybe it has to do with gender identity, occupation, poverty. Maybe it has to do with um, unhome status. Maybe it has to do with immigration, disability. There's tons of stuff that can affect someone's ability to make it into the news lines, you know, the news headlines. So we kind of just focus on those cases. The more obscure, the more interested we are. What do you think it was about the Millbrook twins that kept them out of the news? They were young black girls, you know, adolescents, especially adolescents um, who were treated like runaways. And I think that their race had a factor in it. I think the Mm -hmm. fact that their family was poor had a factor in it. The fact that they went missing right before the major golf tournament in Augusta had a factor in it. It looked bad for the city. I think Mm -hmm. that the people who were in charge of juvenile missing at the time didn't like their jobs very much. It was just sort of this, you know, all of these assumptions kind of made. There there were 70 runaways a month, they said at one point. Right? Mm -hmm. And I don't know if that was a yearly thing or if there had been that month. You know, it was a little unclear. But it was just sort of all this stuff coming together that made it a really bad situation for them. And although the family was reaching out to local media and trying to explain that this was out of character for the girls, there were no circumstances that would lead anyone to believe that they had both run away. They were not popular, popular victims. So they didn't get covered, you know. And we, we see that so much with a lot of, a lot of uh, more of these obscure cases that we've covered here, just even on this show where those marginalized communities, uh, especially in the case that we're going to talk about kind of in depth today is, uh, seems to be one of those where especially, you know, if you go back more than 10 years ago, especially, but like gay victims didn't seem to, you know, the, the police didn't seem to care. The communities didn't care. So I think it's really cool that you guys are, are like focusing on those. And it's a big leap to take to get into a very saturated space of, of true crime podcasting and take on cases that, are not already in the zeitgeist that that people haven't heard of. And you seem to have had a lot of success doing this. I, I'm, I'm just going to run through. If you can give me a little blurb on, e- on each of these so listeners know if they want to they wanna binge on the fall line, um, the different seasons. Because you guys do shorter seasons that focus on different different cases. Because you've done, what, in four years you've done, was it 10, 10 seasons already or 11? Yeah, we, we did. For a while we did like – seasons um that were three four or five episodes and now uh-huh. we've kind of moved into episodic where we might do one on a case then we might do three or four on a case it kind of just depends uh-huh. on the information yeah your season one was the millbrook twins we just talked about and then season two you covered monica and michael bennett which is another disappearance in 1989 what's the what's the basics of that story these were also siblings and they were young they were in their teens um, they went missing in brunswick georgia in 89 And again, their family was very interested in finding out what happened. They have still not been located. Um, And we were able to go down and speak to them. And and Laura was able to do some research. How do you guys find this? So you you kind of told me how you found your first case that you did. But as you you move forward and continue to do more and more, do cases, have cases started coming to you because you've kind of made a name in the space? Are you still out? Like, how did, how did you find the, the, the Bennett case, the Monica and Michael Bennett case? So we started in Georgia, you know, because that's uh-huh. where we live. And my, Monica and Michael were on the GBI's website. Okay. So we found them there. Um, and the first thing we do is reach out to families if they're available. Um, and we usually do that kind of contact by letter. 
because then people can kind of decide if they want to talk to us or not. It just seems right. it just seems like the most respectful thing to do. Or if a family has a memorial page or a justice for page, then it's really clear mm-hmm. they want contact. And so we reached out to their sister and their sister was definitely interested. And we talked to her there. And then we also get a lot of case submissions. Um, and so mm-hmm. it's just kind of a mix of people giving us ideas, sometimes families coming to us, sometimes us finding cases. So it's just kind of this, you know, mix of all of those. And some of these families will have a Facebook page um, about their missing loved one or their unsolved case. And, you know, they have like 40 members or, you know, 100 members in their their friends and family members and community members. Um, and they are really excited about being able to get past their Facebook page. Well, that's great. We also do a lot of unidentified persons, which obviously no mm-hmm. one's looking for. So that's right. the bulk of my FOIA filing. It's filing on unidentified persons all over the U.S. Oh, that's great. And then, so then you moved on to season three, which was the Grandy Babies. It was it seven, seven children born at a hospital that were all kidnapped? Yeah. So that's it's Grady Hospital in Atlanta, Georgia. And we had come upon the story of one baby. And this was Raymond Green, who was kidnapped in 1978. And through our research into Raymond, um, and listeners of ours will know that his mother Donna has become kind of, not only was she the central protagonist of that series, but she's become a good friend of ours. So she's Mm -hmm. shown up again and again in the show. We discovered that not one, not two, but seven babies have been kidnapped, actually, within a period of time there. 1978 to 1996. It's also important to note that Raymond is still missing. He may be in Atlanta. He may have grown up not knowing that his mother is right down the way looking for him and his family. He would be 40. He would be, he'd be 42 turning 43. And also Tavish Sutton is still missing as well. He would be in his maybe mid-20s. He was born in 93, so that math is beyond me right now. I can do this. I can do the seventies math because of certain people's birthdays, right? <laughs> and so that that the 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 Grady babies. That's your season three, uh, and then season four uh, was titled "Between the Lines." And he said, that, uh, looking at the notes that Erica wrote for me, said this is a lesser known cold case involving LGBT victims and Jane Doe's. Yeah, largely. We were looking. That was our first introduction to unidentified persons. Um, we looked at Julie Doe, who is a pretty famous case of a trans Jane Doe, who was discovered mm-hmm. in Florida. Um, we also looked at the unsolved homicides of Tracy Thompson, who was a trans woman who was also murdered in Florida. And we looked we looked at the murdered uh, we looked at the murder of Robert Martin, who was a gay man living in Georgia. And a final case in there as well was we looked at Elia Banderas. Yes. Yeah. And she was actually working at a uh, hotel here in Atlanta. The West End. That was really very fascinating. She not only was undocumented with her immigration status, um, she also worked in the housekeeping industry in a hotel. And many of us, including myself, had not thought about the safety of a job like that. 
even just imagining what happens when you knock on that door. What are you going to walk into? Once you walk into something that's not going right, what power do you have to get your boss to do anything about it? Especially if it's a rich client who frequents the hotel, they don't want to lose the business. She was murdered in the Westin. Um, yeah, it, it's a great case for listeners to get an introduction to some of what we do. And the massive safety issues that housekeeping staff faces. Just there's like the list is insane. That's you guys cover such a broad range. So then you move from there. Season five is it's another disappearance. Is an eight year old who disappeared in in 1998. Shaikimia Pate. Yeah, she disappeared off her front, like basically off her front stoop, not quite, but off her street in a little tiny town in Georgia. She was waiting outside for her sister to pick her up for a football game. Um, And she's a medically fragile child, so she needed a lot of medication. The street was full of neighbors who knew her, um, and so it was just a really baffling disappearance. And due to a mistake by a small—they had a sheriff's office and a police station. The sheriff's office um, has been pursuing this case very doggedly. Since then, working with the GBI, they've pulled out all the stops. Still to this day, they're still to this day. Out? Yes, we've okay. spoken with all of them. Um, we have a good relationship with them. The family has a great relationship with them. However, the police station, the, who's now defunct, the police force, um, they told the family they had to wait twenty four hours to report her missing. So she was eight. Eight. So oh by the time the sheriff found out about it, she'd been gone for twelve hours, yeah. fourteen hours, and, and- he was livid. <laughs> And, you know, the family had been out searching all night, and she was in the wind. So That's so horrible. I can't believe that. We've had Jim Clemente on Truth and Justice a lot. It was a former FBI profiler, and he talked. He will get enraged talking about the um, that old policy that some departments had of you got to wait 24 hours to report someone missing because the, the statistics show that that you know that 24 if you don't find someone within 24 hours especially a juvenile like the chances of finding them alive go down by like 90 some percent so it's it's just crazy that that it seems like something you just see on tv but they actually did that with an eight-year-old surprisingly many departments still did it fairly recently according to the families that we spoke to often with uh men yeah, men go missing. Their families know they must be in danger. This situation mm-hmm. very clearly, they this happened in a lot of cases. We hear it with men all the time. Hard to get men coverage. Hard to report them missing. Ah, that's so strange because talk because talk about a not usually not very marginalized community. Men of all races. Yeah, yeah. In this instance, when families are attempting to get more media coverage, um, it's uh-huh. it's not the kind that sells. It's not. A Jean Benet right. or a Lacey Peterson. Yeah, I, I guess I guess that makes sense. I, I never thought about it that way, um, but it's interesting that they don't that they have a hard time getting both help from sounds like from the police and from the media when men go missing. You're supposed to be out having fun and partying. You know that's the assumption that's made. Right. Well, we're big. We're big, strong, and handsome. We can handle ourselves. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. You know, of course, no reason to go look for us. <laughs> By the way, if I ever go missing, that's not true. I'm none of those things, so come look for me. <laughs> We've got it on tape. <laughs> <laughs> <You're> right. 
Uh, just, just a, I'm just going to breeze through the, the, the rest of these, just give you guys ideas of what you're going to hear. Such a variety. Like you have in season seven, you cover the missing and murdered girls in the Carolinas. Uh, then you have a whole season on, um, Jane Doe's two Jane Doe cases. Now, what was that? It says it's, it's one living Jane Doe at a mental hospital. She was, yeah, she was living. She, um, showed up. In Columbia, South Carolina, um, there's some accent, sorry, in, Col- in Columbia, South Carolina, and <laughs> she um, was alive, but she died within 24 hours of being checked in, and they hadn't ascertained uh-huh. her identity, and they still haven't today. She was um, having an apparent psychotic break, and she was unable to tell them who she was. She gave them a few names. She gave them a name of someone who might be a family member. She answered to a few different names. Uh, but because of her mental status, they were not able to figure out who she was before she died. So they have a picture of her. Mm-hmm. There's a, pic- There's a picture. picture. Uh, people who spoke to her. Nobody knows. And still, into the, I'm always amazed at cases like that where, like, in today's age, like, where now you can circle back to that with social media and how small the world is to get that photo out. And still no one, no one is able to identify her. Well, not to mention, too, that, like, no family or anybody came forward to say they were missing somebody. <clears throat> right. And that's some of the things that we've seen. Um, there are times when the family members are going through their own stresses or have had a um, a relationship break with the person. So they always wonder what happened to them, but they're not necessarily looking. And if they were, for example, from California and the victim ends up in South Carolina. How would they know to look there? How would the right. how would the cops in South Carolina know to be looking for their origin? So in these cases, we have done some dis- discussing cases with forensic genealogists and forensic anthropologists. And Laura has a great relationship um, with some of some of our friends who do that. And that's really the way to go in these cases. It's so wonderful that the science is emerging. Yeah, and it, it's so even with a platform like a podcast, it's hard to get because the the space is so noisy, right? There's so many different shows and social media and stuff out there. It's still very difficult to get, say, that picture out to the world to get anybody to pay attention to it. Have Have you guys had any of your cases where you've had success where you really feel like um, that, like what you did made a significant impact on the case directly? I mean, you're making an impact by just getting them getting people talking about them again. But have you had any like big ones where you're like, oh, this happened because we broadcast the show? So um, the first case that we did, the Melbrook twins, they ended up getting a special on oxygen. Um, oh, wow. Mm-hmm, and it was a two, two-part sort of documentary series. Would we mm-hmm. say documentary? <laughs> Let's say. Yeah, doc- it, was one, it was a two-hour, one-part series documentary on their case and that led to a lot more attention um mm-hmm. our uh, listeners raised a big reward for them so they got a billboard up but now kind of most importantly all this attention through private investigations for the missing which i'm sure you've probably heard of it's a nonprofit that's run by the father of brianna bruce, maitland bruce, bruce maitland um who went missing um years ago tim and lance are on the board you know tim and lance okay um yeah yeah um so they got them api so that's been happening as well. And so uh-huh. a lot of tips have come in there. Um, tips and, have come in on other cases, too, that we've been told about. Yeah. So so Bruce, Brianna's father, 
they were able to work with a PI when his daughter went missing, and he ended up meeting a lot of people in the community who wished they had the finances to pay for such a thing. So he started this nonprofit, they raise money, they pay PIs to work on these cases for families that don't have the resources. And it is such a great organization. They don't pay themselves. All of the money that you donate goes straight to the PIs. And also, Laura, tell them about the identification um, in Florida, the Samuel Little. Oh, that that one was kind of wild. We accidentally helped identify um, a Samuel Little victim's family, but that's completely my research assistant did that. The police hadn't connected the Samuel Little victim's family um, to the victim herself. Mm-hmm. And she, this was simply through using Ancestry and doing the research that we always do. And this is um, Miriam Chapman is her name. And when we were doing research for the project, we always used Ancestry. We do, you know, that kind of work. But mm-hmm. um, law enforcement doesn't do that kind of back-end research. So when we published the series, um, a newspaper dude, that's what they call journalists, right? A newspaper dude newspaper got, dudes, right. <laughs> got in contact and said, where did you get this info? And we were like, ancestry? It's right there. Um, but yeah. <laughs> I, I shared it with him, you know. He was very excited. I didn't know why. Well, then I found out it's because they had been trying to track her family. So it turns out that my research assistant, Brian, because I want to give him the props for that, found it and helped connect um, her to her family and got in touch. And he specifically helped Miami-Dade connect those dots. So that was great. Yeah. So law enforcement had not been able to make a notification to the family that they had found her remains, that um, this had happened to her. And so they were able to do that then, which is so cool. That's incredible. And that was your last completed season, right? Season 11, where you covered the victims of of Samuel Little. Yeah, that's the last like long form. And so so for season 12, mm-hmm. we've just been doing more, you know, single episodes or like two to three part episodes. We're just calling it season 12, but really it's a whole year. <laughs> it's just a year of it gets tricky. Have you guys found as you're making the book? Because I have we I have gone through with Truth and Justice and redone the numbers and titles of our episodes at least six times over the last six years from, from the way the, you know, because we're just changing the way we format and, you know, whether we're doing it seasons or episodic, if it's just continuing on. And so have you guys had to do that? Or are you just like you did, you've been doing seasons. So this is what season 12 is, even though season 12 doesn't look like season 11. It's because Apple will get angry at us and put it all at the bottom right. if we don't make it 12. So industry secret secret it's all 12 now it's and, just it's just 12 right. forever <laughs> and we get uh we get bad reviews because people are like i can't find my way through this apple podcast confusing bad reviews so <laughs> we just make right. it all 12 until next year it will be 13 oh <laughs> uh, the biggest problem i've had with with uh apple like with that is they only show your most recent 300 episodes and so, like, for us, like, some of our more pop, you know, season one and season two were, like, some of our most popular, two of our most popular cases, you know, the Anansi Ed case and then Ed Eights, who we actually were able to walk out of prison. And so, we get new listeners that want to go back and, and hear the Ed Eight story, and they're like, it's gone. They think that Apple's the only possible place to listen to podcasts. <laughs> like, it's gone. Why isn't season two there? But you just have to go literally anywhere else besides Apple, and they can <laughs> they can listen to season two of Truth and Justice. 
I didn't know they did that. Yeah. Yeah. They, they the, only the top, or only your most recent 300, unless they've changed it. But I, I, I only, I only knew that was an issue when people started telling me that season two was gone. And I'm like, it's not gone. It's right there. But it wasn't right there. I think they might have recently changed it. Don't, oh, did they? Yeah. So they're I back think now? they're back. I think they're back. I don't, don't, I don't tell quote Apple, me on that, but I listen on Overcast. So. <laughs> Well, hopefully the Apple people aren't listening. <laughs> they don't. Not after this. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be the last time Apple, the 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 Apple executives listen to us. So the 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 case we're going to talk about today is part of season twelve. Now I think you guys haven't, as of when we're recording this, you haven't covered the case yet on the show, right? But it but by the time this airs, which will be in three or four weeks. It will have been covered. Yeah. So we'll we'll be in the true crime binge time machine as though this has already been discussed on your podcast. So, t- so tell us about the case of Brian Werrell? Worley. 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 My husband said it's a German name. Um, it's some famous auto part, apparently. I he saw me writing oh. it. And he was like, he said Worley, and I was like, okay. But right. <laughs> it's, it's um Worley's the family name. It's how the family pronounces okay. it. Yeah. So, when we're talking about Brylin Worley's case, this is another Georgia case, um, and we always kind of circle back to Georgia, not only because it's where we live, but we really like to travel to talk to people if we can. We love doing in-person mm-hmm. interviews, not only for the tape, but we can often get to files easier because we can, whenever you can go in and talk to folks, like, you know, in law enforcement, you can almost always mm-hmm. get more, you can get to know them, you can interview them. But especially for Brooke, mm-hmm. you can get the family interviews in person, and those work out right. way better. But the basics on Brian Worley, um, Brian Worley was nearly 40 years old when he disappeared, and he disappeared in September of 2009. And mm-hmm. he was in kind of an interesting place. This was the same week of the Great Atlanta Flood. This was a really serious flood. Um, it flooded all of Metro Atlanta which is, you know, the city proper in like seven or eight counties around it. It cost millions of dollars to deal with this flood. Um, And he had to drive through it, the tail end of it. Um, Even though he lived in, you know, interior of Atlanta in this really cool neighborhood called Morningside. He lived there with his partner, Jeff. They'd been together for about 12 years. They had these awesome dogs. They had a very nice life together. But he Mm -hmm. had to make it over to Carrollton, Georgia, which is west. Is that right? I should not ask. I got no idea. I'm so sorry, Carrollton. <laughs> I'm pretty sure we take 20 West to get there. Okay. Fairly certain West Georgia is the college. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. West. Mm-hmm. I looked at the map 12 times, but my brain just eats directions. Not spatial. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. um, put it this way. It's about an hour away. He had, okay. It's <laughs> about an hour away from where you are. Yeah. An hour away from Atlanta. Um, okay. And he was having to travel back and forth quite a bit to Carrollton, Georgia, um, which is his hometown where he grew up. He grew up in this very big, happy, kind of chaotic Catholic family. Um, they were originally from Pittsburgh, but they had traveled around a lot for his dad's job. He was one of the younger of nine kids. So two parents, nine kids. And by wow. the time he was born, he already had nieces and nephews who were also kids. So by the time he's in junior high, he's got all these little kids running around and he's Uncle Brian, who's, you know, a few years older. So he's playing with them. He's wrestling around with them. He's kind of like the overall favorite uncle of all time for obvious reasons. Mm -hmm. But by the time he has gotten a little bit older, you know, he's living in the city. 
He's driving back and forth to Carrollton so much because his parents had been really ill. So ill that at one point he had to actually move back to Carrollton to care for them. Mm -hmm. Um, But after his father died, um, he'd stayed there and lived with his mother for a while. But eventually she needed so much care that they made the decision with his siblings, several of whom were still in town, that she really needed to be in a private nursing home. She had fairly advanced dementia and she really needed nurse care. So the last few things that needed to be done were they needed to get some documents signed. And for that, he needed to go to probate court. He had a probate court appointment in Carrollton on the 24th. So on the 22nd, he had to set out for Carrollton. Unfortunately, it was during a flood. Um, So what would normally be like an hour long trip ended up being six to eight hours. Uh, that's driving through flooded Atlanta streets, having this sort of circuitous journey, um, just having to turn around. It was incredibly stressful, really dangerous driving situations. And his parents, big old Buick LeSabre that he'd been driving so bad Uh that he actually had to pull over at a restaurant and have a drink, which is not something that he did, but he finally made it into town. Um, he called everybody, said, I'm alive. I will talk to you tomorrow. The next day, September 23rd, he's seen that day. Because he stops in, he says hello. To, he says hello to his sister Anita, who lives in town. Her husband Spencer. He calls his mm-hmm. partner Jeff. He calls his niece Amanda, who is one of his closest friends. She's living up in Ohio, going to graduate school. But it's important because he talks to all of these folks. He talks to them about his plans, and there's a couple important plans that he has. And one of them is what? So, um, first of all, he was telling on the phone, he was telling the relatives that he was looking for this receipt. He was supposed to go to probate court in the morning. It was a sort of a routine matter where he was presenting receipts and things for his parents' estate. He was looking for this one receipt and it was really pissing him off. He couldn't find it. So he was going through the house. He also told his niece that he was talking to and his uh, brother-in-law that he wanted to go buy a topographical map. He was really pissed off that he kept getting turned around at all these places because of the flood. He was going to leave right after the court appointment and go back to Atlanta. So he wanted to find the best way for him to get home without being turned around. So as a land surveyor, like a topographical map made sense to him. That's what he'd been doing for work. Um, Right. I, I don't know if your audience is familiar with those. Like if you gave me that, I would cry. But it's, right. <laughs> you know, it's an, a map that for someone who does that kind of work, it makes lots of sense. You know, it's not flat on the page. It has kind of that element that makes it feel 3D. So he mm-hmm. was really set on getting that kind of map. And that's an important detail. So basically, the last time he was seen, um, the neighbors saw the light on in the garage at his parents' house. And they assumed he was sort of working on his car. It was late that night. It was maybe 2, around 2 a.m. On the 23rd. Um, and the next morning, he didn't show at court, and everyone was really confused. He was a responsible guy. He would never have just not shown up. Um, so initially, uh, pe- the people in his family started thinking, could it have had to do with the flood? Maybe he, maybe his car broke down. Um, they went to the house to look for him, and they found his car and his wallet missing. Mm-hmm. Okay. And everything else was there. All his stuff, like, you know, stuff you bring when you're staying overnight somewhere. His cell phone, Um, his overnight bag, the bed was turned back, mm -hmm. like he was going to get into it and go to sleep. Did he ever find the topographical map? Well, 
we don't know. Well, because I'm wondering because of his job and the fact that he was looking for that so intently, was he trying to track the flood? Like, was he trying to to plan a route around where the water was with the map? He, he was looking for other ways because he was used to taking the same route, right, from Carrollton to Atlanta. Because uh-huh. it really is a straight shot on I-20 if you're coming right. from Atlanta to Carrollton. And the highways were just wrecked. They were in terrible shape. Mm-hmm. And I think he was trying to figure out if there were some back roads he could take. You know, to kind of see, mm-hmm. like, what that terrain would be like. That were high enough. Higher elevation. It wouldn't have had standing water on it because he was being, the highways were closed. He was being turned around. This is why it took so long. He would go on a back road. He'd make it pretty far, and then he'd be stopped and had to turn around and go back. And it was a nightmare, so. And the map it comes up as being important because one of the first things that people thought was, well, everybody saw him up late at night. He was someone that had insomnia, along with some other health problems. He also had narcolepsy, um, pretty severe arthritis. He also had a pacemaker. These are all kind of important details about him. I saw that. He had had a pacemaker at 39 years old? Yeah. He had developed a heart problem. Um, No one can remember precisely what it was, but he hadn't had it his whole life. It had been installed sometime in the last 10 years or so. I thought it was, yeah, the last few years. Yes, the last few years. But he had a pacemaker. Um, and that severe arthritis as well. Mm-hmm. So they assume that with him being up so late that Wednesday, that Wednesday night, that he might have been planning to go out to get try and get a map. And in Carrollton, that late at night, like what's going to be open? It's a small town. Walmart. Yeah, Walmart and Waffle yeah. House. But you're not going to get a map at Waffle House. So they immediately thought to themselves, well, maybe he went to Walmart. Maybe he had a medical emergency. Um, you know, th- those are the places they started to look. Maybe he had an accident on the way mm-hmm. to Walmart. But after calling around, you know, sort of checking the obvious places, driving around, no sight of a wreck, they did call the Carrollton Police Department um, to report him as missing. Initially, I believe his partner Jeff called. And it was difficult for him to make a report. And this is something that we have heard before. If it's not an immediate family member, if it is a, you know, um, a couple, a man, man, woman couple, oftentimes they will allow that spouse to report. In this case, um, they not only didn't really let him make the report, he's also referred to in several of the police files as his roommate. So at that point, I think also around the same time, Brian's sister was calling and they took a report from her and got started right away. And I think in this case, the flood actually helped him. We were talking earlier about men sometimes being assumed to not be in danger, even when their family is saying this is, this really looks that way. In this case, luckily there was a flood. And so the police were more motivated to go looking. They thought maybe something had happened, um, you know, to his car. Did they ever locate did they ever locate the car or the wallet? Well, they did locate the car, but not for several months. The car was actually found in Chattanooga, Tennessee in December. And the car was and this is sort of interesting because in between that time there was this kind of theory that perhaps he had kind of left on his own volition. Um maybe he had mm. gotten sick of their relationship, the relationship with Jeff, maybe he had sort of taken off Although his social media was checked, not social media, he didn't have any. His his texts were checked, um, his cell phone was checked, 
phone logs, email. There was nothing like that, no unusual numbers. But when his car was found, it kind of changed the game a little bit. And another thing I should add at that time was that his spouse had also been cleared. Not only had Mm -hmm. Jeff taken two polygraph tests, but it was pretty clear based on phone records that he was in Atlanta at the time that this happened. Okay. Yeah. And And also had been drinking that night pretty heavily based on his own admittance and also other friends who talked Mm -hmm. to him. He wasn't going to drive, make it through a flood all the way to Carrollton. Um, Right. So when the car was found in Chattanooga, that's a two hour drive from Carrollton and the plates had been changed. Uh, They were Tennessee plates. I think they had been stolen. The Tennessee plate, yeah, the, the plates are interesting because the car was found in a residential neighborhood um, that was not a straight shoot from the highway. You'd have to make five or six turns. So you'd kind of need to know where you were going to drop the car off there. Um, the plates mm-hmm. had been changed and the plates were probably changed sometime in October, about two to three weeks after the car was stolen. And what's interesting is, it turns out much later, the original investigator on this case retired about three years after Brian went missing. Then it was picked up by the investigators that we interviewed for our podcast. Um, And they've done some great work. And one of the things they found was that the plate was actually run, Brian's car was actually run um, right after his car was stolen. The problem is, is that for some reason, it didn't trigger the system even though it was reported stolen. So while they were searching for him in those first few days, some police officer somewhere had run his plate yeah. and it, they, weren't, they just weren't able to make the connection. It just didn't trigger. Yeah, it was in two weeks, mm-hmm. within two weeks. So it was, I want to say, like, don't quote me, but I want to say it was October 6th, 7th, somewhere in there. Um, mm-hmm. So his plate was run and it was run within a few days of the same stolen Tennessee plate that ended up on this car. And his plate was run in Coweta County, which is in Georgia. Um, Mm -hmm. And they can't, of course, prove that his plate was actually on his car at that time. Who knows? It could have gotten switched onto another car at that point. Right. But it just didn't trigger Coweta and it didn't trigger Carrollton. So she only found out that it had even been run when she decided to go back. the, The investigator decided to go back and just look through tons of license plate records. And just notice that. Yeah, it sounds like they must. Somebody must have slipped up and not put something into the NCIC system, because that—that's the system that is supposed to catch those things where you put in like missing persons yep. and their vehicle and all of that. The case is fascinating. I'm looking forward to hearing the rest of the story. Once I said I, we're uh, as we're as we're recording this, it's not out yet, and I'm sure all of you guys are going to want to check it out. Like they, we've gone through just some. We didn't even touch the surface of all the cases. Uh, that Laura and Brooke have covered on their podcast. So make sure you check them out. Their names are Brooke Hargrove and Laura Norton. The podcast is called The Fall Line. Check it out. I'm sure it'll be your next big true crime binge. Thank you, ladies, so much for taking time out of your day to chat with me. It's been fun. Thank you. Crime Binge is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Audioboom. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing. Music and artwork by Shane Yoder of PutThemInASong.com. Our website, TrueCrimeBinge.com, was created by Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com. 
if you're a listener and would like to recommend a future guest or a podcaster that would like to request an interview, you can do so right on our website. And again, that web address is truecrimebinge.com. If you're enjoying the show, please do me a huge favor and take a minute to rate and review us on iTunes or whatever platform you're using to listen. And make sure you give us a follow on social media. We can be found everywhere at True Crime Binge. Thank you so much for listening, and make sure you tune in next Wednesday morning for another podcaster, another case, and another True Crime Binge.